The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello. She lived a long life and had a long career, writing and publishing poetry for 70 years. Her home was Chicago, her headquarters, as she called it, and her subject was primarily the people in it. And her talent and skill and devotion to her craft and art made her one of the greatest and most well-known purveyors of lines of poetry that could startle, inform, agitate, express, convey and portray, illuminate, and enlighten. One reviewer wrote, quote, From her poet's craft bursts a whole gallery of wholly alive persons, preening, squabbling, loving, weeping. Many a novelist cannot do so well in ten times the space. End quote. Another said, quote, The words, lines, and arrangements have been worked and worked and worked again into poised exactness. The unexpected apt metaphor, the mock colloquial asides amid jeweled phrases, the half-ironic repetitions, she knows it all. End quote. She was the first black American to win a Pulitzer Prize in any category, the Poet Laureate of Illinois for 32 years, a National Poet Laureate, and the first African-American woman inducted into the American Academy of Arts and Letters. She was a literary giant, coming to us in a modest, unassuming form. A humble giant, but also a fierce and unflinching one. Her name was Gwendolyn Brooks, and we will be talking about her and her works today on The History of Literature. Okay, here we go. Welcome to the podcast, everyone. I'm Jack Wilson. I'm glad you're here today. Gwendolyn Brooks. Wow. And Chicago. We're going to have a special treat for you soon. Another Chicago story. I was going to include it here with our Gwendolyn Brooks episode, but we have too much to cover with Ms. Brooks and our guest. We have another sneak preview from our upcoming interview with Professor Mira Sundara Rajan, who is bringing the world the reminder of another great 20th century poet, Bharati, also known in India as the Tamil Muakavi, Mahakavi, sorry, or great poet. His is an inspiring story, and his writings are wonderful too. So let's do that first. Oh, and we have another number one. We didn't do that yet, did we? These are countries we are thanking for making the history of literature the number one books podcast in your country. Come on, all you countries. Try making us number one. All the cool countries are doing it. Croatia, Norway, the Bahamas, and now... Do we have another one? Indeed we do. Lithuania has graced us with that honor and downloaded our humble little podcast enough times to make us number one there. Thank you to all of our Lithuanian friends for your generous support. Lithuanians and Chicagoans are a good pairing, actually. Chicago is apparently the largest city of Lithuanians outside of Lithuania. They flooded in to fill the factory floors in the early 20th century, and in American literature, they hold a solid spot in Upton Sinclair's famous book, The Jungle, where the protagonist is Jurgis Rudkus, the Lithuanian immigrant to the city of broad shoulders. That book has such a history 
We might need to do a show on it and its legacy, but not this show. We will save that story for another day. Today we have Gwendolyn Brooks and our sneak preview with Professor Rajan after this. Hey, grown-ups! The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his Fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself, and it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, Bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Okay, here again to talk about the Supreme Poet or Mahakavi of Tamil literature is our guest, Professor Sundara Rajan, who has edited a new collection of English writings by renowned poet C. Subramania Bharati. Professor Sundara Rajan, welcome to the History of Literature. Thank you, Jack. I'm delighted to be here. So this is sort of a preview of our forthcoming talk about Bharati's life and works, but I wanted to try to capture, if we can, what makes him such a special figure in Tamil culture and really world literature Generally, there's a phrase you use in the introduction that I wanted to ask you about, and and I'm wondering if you could give us an example of it, which is that he was an exuberant optimist. Mm. Is there a, a story or a verse or something that would help us see this quality in action? Well, actually, pretty much anything that you read that Bharati wrote, whether in English or in Tamil, would help you to see that quality in action. Mm. Because he was a poetic visionary who was very preoccupied with the future. And I think that's at the heart of why he was an exuberant optimist. He was preoccupied with making the world as he wanted it to be, as so many great people are. And that fundamentally was the purpose of everything that he wrote, that he wanted to make the world a better place and he wanted to make the future a better future than the one that the world had known so far. So it's amazing in pretty much everything that he writes, either permeating the writing or ending up in the conclusion, we see him saying, well, here we are, we're going to use these principles and move forward towards creating a better world. And that world is going to come into being. I see it with my poetic vision. I see it and I'm engaged in the process of bringing that into creation. Mm. And I don't think Bharati was unique in that historical period in seeing things that way. I think many of the important writers, artists, musicians of the early 20th century, they saw that the world was in flux and they wanted to 
play a role in bringing about a better future through their works. I mean, there's so many examples that I could cite in world culture. So in that sense, I think he was typical of the times. But I think he was unique as a writer in the sense that he embraced this particular role so closely and made it the single sort of guiding mission of everything that he wrote. Mm. I think the reason he did that also is pretty obvious. It's because things were so bad. Mm. Uh, you know, he was living he was living in a country that was totally oppressed, where uh, women, more than 50% of the population, were living in a situation that he calls enslavement. That's the word that he uses. He says, let's not shrink from strong language where terrible facts are concerned. And where everywhere he turned, he saw evils in action. He saw caste oppression. He saw the racial oppression of the Indians by the British. He saw the oppression of women. And he just felt uh, very concerned that these things should no longer be part of human reality. The world had to be a better place and give better expression to the best impulses of the human race in which he really believed absolutely. So he was an exuberant optimist because he was seeing himself. He was in the process of creating that world, the world that he wanted to come into being. Mm. And when we first started mentioning this, I wanted to to clarify that it's not just technological change or or political institutional change, but actually almost more of a, a spiritual change or a I don't know if the right word is psychological or mm. just us yep. recognizing the dignity in other people and their ideas and the great traditions from around the world of thinkers and artists and, as you said, visionaries. It seems like he was just open to all of that. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's such a contemporary message for us today, mm. you know, because the problems we're confronting today, aren't they at some level the same kind of problem? Problems about seeing the dignity in human beings, seeing the dignity in nature. That was a great preoccupation of Bharati too. He always said, if we want to know how things should function, let's look at nature and learn from nature. She is the great teacher. Mm. And today we're facing these problems, vast problems like climate change. But I think at some level, they're primarily problems of mentality. We need to have the mentality that we can make positive change. And that's why we need to read a writer like Bharati today. Mm. Well put. Well, we will look forward to hearing more about Bharati's life and works on a forthcoming episode. Professor Sundarat Rajan, thank you so much for joining me on the History of Literature. Thank you. I'm looking forward to it. Professor Sundara Rajan, we will have our full interview with her coming up next week. Also, the story of the Black James Bond. That's our other Chicago story. And many other goodies as well. You can check out Bharati's writings, The Coming Age, which Penguin has put out. And you can listen to Mira's podcast, Bharati 100, which commemorates the death anniversary of the great Tamil poet. 
Gwendolyn Brooks was born in Topeka, Kansas in 1917, but within a month or so, she was in Chicago, where she would live the rest of her life. She grew up in a household that revered stories and storytelling and writing and poetry. Her father was a janitor, her mother was a schoolteacher, but both of them were avid readers and very encouraging of Gwendolyn's early efforts. By the time she was 13, she was publishing her poetry in children's publications and in local newspapers as well, the Hyde Parker and the famous black newspaper, The Defender. This was way before the Civil Rights Movement, but thanks to her parents, she had some examples of black Americans who were writing and publishing, Langston Hughes, for one, and especially Paul Lawrence Dunbar. She went to different high schools, the prestigious Hyde Park High School. Hyde Park, for those of you who might not be familiar, is the neighborhood where the Museum of Science and Industry and the University of Chicago are, and the Obamas. Hyde Park High School had a predominantly white student body. At the time, she also attended an all-black school called Wendell Phillips, and then another integrated school, Englewood High School. Three high schools for Gwendolyn Brooks. High schools are a time for observing class and social status, and in this environment, racial attitudes and politics. And if you've ever attended multiple high schools or been an outsider arriving at a new school, you know how illuminating, illuminating that experience can be. You see the subcultures, you see the cliques and the sharp boundary lines. You see who's decent and who's venomous and who's strong and who's vulnerable. You see who's striving and who's on top of the world and who's down and who's kicking people who are down. And there's Gwendolyn, mindful of the writings of her favorite poets and a mother who told her, you're going to be the Lady Paul Lawrence Dunbar. And her eyes open to the prejudice she sees and the swirling mix and already published and still writing her careful rhymes and lofty meditations, in her phrase. After high school, Gwendolyn Brooks didn't go to college. Didn't need it, she said. I'm not a scholar, I'm a writer. This is the wonderful part of Gwendolyn Brooks and her personality, her connection to her subject and her purpose and herself. Her subject matter changed, and she changed too as she got older and more established. You can see all that in her writing. But her sense of location, of being comfortable where she was, being rooted and being focused, is impressive and inspiring. I want to turn to her literary career now, but maybe we can begin by saying that 70 years is a very long time in the life of a poet and person. We can select poems and public statements or positions from particular moments, and we'll do a bit of that, but we should acknowledge as we do so that what she... Hmm, let me put this a different way. If we go back 70 years from today, we would land in 1952. Imagine a young girl writing in 1952. Not only would she be writing about things on a young girl's mind, the atmosphere around her would be quite different from what it would be today. My own parents were actually about 12 at the time in 1952. What did they know in 1952? World War II had just ended. The horrors of the Holocaust had just been made real, to the grown-ups anyway. Europe was rebuilding and the Cold War was launching. Nukes, Sputnik, no Elvis or rock and roll, not yet. My mom had television and my dad did not. And there wasn't much on yet anyway, and the reception was terrible. All that would change in the next 10 years, and then another 10, 
Saw new developments and another 10. Life turned from black and white to color. Rock and roll started. Vietnam, the civil rights movement, the sexual revolution, Watergate, Reaganism. These things all mattered. They all affected how people thought. And now here we are in a pandemic on the other side of the personal computer and the internet, on the other side of 9-11, all this history that's happened. My parents, if they were to write a poem today, would be writing a very different poem than the ones they would have written in 1952. Perhaps. Hold that thought for a moment. But first, let's bump our time frame forward. Gwendolyn Brooks was born in 1917. Her early years, fierce segregation. Migration north to escape Jim Crow, finding a home in Chicago as it boomed with new workers, but neighborhoods full of black people, with black businesses and newspapers and churches and schools, and then the Depression, and then the war, and then Brown versus the Board of Education, the landmark desegregation case, the Board of Education of Topeka, Kansas, by the way, is the school in that case, was one where Brooks's mother had taught. When we lift a poem from a writer like Brooks, who wrote 20 books of poetry, in addition to a novel and children's books and other writings too, when we lift something written in the 1940s or 1980s, we have an awful lot of context to consider. Perhaps. There's that perhaps again, because even as we recognize that what Brooks might have said about, let's say, being black or fighting against injustice, the particularities of those fights and those positions might be seen one way if they're early in her career and another way if they're late. Or they might be very much rooted in an argument of a particular politician or political cycle, or election year, or what have you. There's a lot that changes. There's also a lot that doesn't change. Injustice doesn't change, fundamentally, though it might morph a bit. And love doesn't change. Kindness, pride, family relations. And even though Brooks is rightly famous for her descriptions of people, especially black people in Chicago, what she had to say often transcended specifics and found truths applicable to all humans. In 1950, she said that she wrote, quote, to prove to others by implication, not by shouting, and to such among themselves who have yet to discover it, that they are merely human beings, not exotics, end quote. That merely, the word merely does so much work there, merely human beings. But of course, that is everything. In a world where black people are treated as invisible at best and inferior at worst, to help them and others discover that they are human is elevating too. Not just merely human beings, but human and here. Herely human, we might say. Let's look at some poems. Richard Wright said that when he was, uh, he said this, the following, when he was famous as the author of Native Son and his fellow Chicagoan, Gwendolyn Brooks was still relatively unknown. He was asked about her works by his publisher. Is she the real deal, they wanted to know. Tell us about her. We might publish some of her work. What do you think of her poems? And Wright wrote back, quote, They are hard and real, right out of the central core of black belt Negro life in urban areas. 
There is no self-pity here, not a striving for effect. She takes hold of reality as it is and renders it faithfully. There's not so much an exhibiting of Negro life to whites in these poems as there is an honest human reaction to the pain that lurks so colorfully in the black belt. She easily catches the pathos of petty destinies, the whimper of the wounded, the tiny incidents that plague the lives of the desperately poor, and the problem of color prejudice among Negroes. Only one who has actually lived and suffered in a kitchenette could render the feeling of lonely frustration as well as she does, of how dreams are drowned out by the noises, smells, and the frantic desire to grab one's chance to get a bath when the bathroom is empty. Miss Brooks is real, and so are her poems. End quote. The pathos of petty destinies, the whimper of the wounded, Wright is rising to the occasion to employ some poetic turns of phrase himself, and the kitchenette, which struck him as one that has struck so many people. It's a very famous poem he's referring to. Let's start with that one. It's one of Brooks's great early poems. I have no doubt Richard Wright was thinking of it when he, in referencing it, when he said that she must have actually lived and suffered in one. And indeed she did. The poem is called Kitchenette Building. And it's from her first collection, A Street in Bronzeville. Kitchenette Building. We are things of dry hours and the involuntary plan. Grayed in and gray. Dream makes a giddy sound, not strong like rent. Feeding a wife, satisfying a man. But could a dream send up through onion fumes its white and violet, fight with fried potatoes and yesterday's garbage ripening in the hall, flutter, or sing an aria down these rooms, even if we were willing to let it in, had time to warm it, keep it very clean, anticipate a message, let it begin? We wonder, but not well, not for a minute, since number five is out of the bathroom now, we think of lukewarm water. Hope to get in it. Four stanzas, three lines, four lines, three and three. Each stanza like a sandwich with a rhyme on the lines that are the bread and an unrhymed line, or two lines, in the middle. The second stanza is a little thicker than the others. The verse here is strict but not straight-jacketed, as we saw in Yeats. Brooks, she reminds me of that great story about Picasso, that when he was still young, he was drawing and painting perfect representations of objects, a beautiful chicken with feathers as detailed as those in a photograph. He didn't turn to the abstract because he couldn't paint that way. He could do whatever he wanted with the brush. He had a vision, and he achieved it. Brooks is like that too, only instead of vision, we can say voice. Her earlier works tend to be a little more formally rigid. You can see her learning her craft and applying it, but also demonstrating it to those who might question her otherwise. After she won the Pulitzer and after her name became more and more famous with each collection of poems, she gets freer to depart from forms and speak in a voice more of her choosing more in tune with the music in her mind. And like Picasso, sometimes that meant expressing herself more directly to a particular social or political event or theme. But there's never really a doubt about her care 
with words. She likes writing. That's clear. It's the only work she ever wanted to do, she once said. She likes words and how they sound. She likes putting them in the right order and making them do what she wants. In Kitchenette Building, we are things of dry hours. That's how it begins. What a beautiful phrase that is. It sounds like T.S. Eliot, a poet Brooks read, of course. We are things of dry hours and the involuntary, involuntary plan. So rich, grayed in and gray. What a line. Line and a half. So modest and unassuming, but so rich with life. And then what? Dream. The very word sounds different from the ones that weigh you down. The sound of a cloud versus the sound of anchors. A dream is white and violet, she says, the poet says, but it rises up through onion fumes and ripening garbage in that kitchenette building. Can it sing an aria? Here, who has time for that? Who has room to take care of it? And then that wonderful last stanza. We wonder, but not well, not for a minute. In other words, we have this couple. Rent is on their mind, feeding a wife and satisfying a man, jobs and housework, and trying to make it in this kitchenette building. Who has time to dream in such a place? Because we're sharing a bathroom. And number five, not even a name, just known by his or her apartment number. Because the people here, we're not family, we're not friends, we're almost pitted against each other here in the world of this poem. You know how that is, right, listeners? I have neighbors across the street, and I'm sure they're very nice people and everything, and all I can think about when I think about them is how happy I am when they don't park their car in my spot and how unhappy I am when they do. That's who they are to me. Good when they're gone. Because of something as simple as a car at a curb. In the world of this poem, number five takes up the bathroom. We can't dream big dreams... Because we want to hustle into the bathroom, not because it has hot water, but because it's at least lukewarm. And we hope to get in it. Because cold water or no water would be even worse. We are living in this kitchenette building, making the best of it. It's not always great. It's not always luxurious or rarefied. But it has small pleasures or moments of relief, and it could be worse. That's Brooks in her first collection of poems, and you'll find things like that at the end, too, throughout her career. It's rays of hope in the darkness. So, the kitchenette building. This was a feature of Chicago on the South Side in the 1930s. Brooks's father came to Chicago in the early 1920s, and he bought a house, a large and comfortable house with a backyard. But then things got tougher. In the 30s, there were not enough jobs to go around, and then not enough houses and discrimination started to take over. The solution to all these people looking for work and looking for housing was to chop up the houses and apartments into kitchenettes, meaning slumlords would build a bunch of small rooms inside the living rooms and bedrooms of existing houses, partition them off so that families would crowd in, sharing the kitchen and the bathroom. Brooks grew up in her family home, but when she was married, she and her husband moved into one of these kitchenette buildings. 
What did they feel like? Well, we know from the poems, you feel like a thing. We are things of dry hours, she says, grayed in and gray. Even your plans are not your own, involuntary plans. You feel like you're not in control. The plans find you. The crises steer you in their direction. The smells here aren't warm and cozy. They're onion fumes. And the dreams, such as they are, fight to be smelled over the smell of fried potatoes. Who can be a flower or an opera singer in a place like this? And the dream here becomes an it. Even if we could let it begin and take care of it. No longer a dream, just another thing. And who has room for that? Who has psychic room or physical room in a kitchenette building? But there's hope here, I think. Hope of getting in that lukewarm water. But the hope I really see is the poet's hope and excitement and joy of finding the words to describe it, the surprising rhyme of minute and hope to get in it. Brooks later called another kitchenette, quote, our most exciting kitchenette, end quote. And she said, if you wanted a poem, when you were living there, you had only to look out a window. There was material always, walking or running, fighting or screaming or singing. Brooks is looking at the world with her poet's eye, meeting the world halfway on her terms, the poet contemplating the raw stuff of poetry. As an artist, that is, she was on equal terms with life, even if she was perpetually surrounded by, confronted by, and attacked by inequality. In a later collection called The Bean Eaters, she looks again at a couple in a building like this one. The poem that gives the collection its name, The Bean Eaters, goes like this. They eat beans mostly, this old yellow pear. Dinner is a casual affair. Plain chipware on a plain and creaking wood. Tin flatware. Two who are mostly good. Two who have lived their day but keep on putting on their clothes and putting things away and remembering, remembering with twinklings and twinges as they lean over the beans in their rented back room that is full of beads and receipts and dolls and cloths, tobacco crumbs, vases, and fringes. Yellow, a yellow pear aging like newspaper before our eyes not settling into their fat bourgeois retirement years, but a casual affair for dinner with beans, mostly on plain chipware, on a plain old creaking table, eaten with tin flatware. Chipware is such a poet's word. Not dishes, but chipware. And not silverware, or knives and forks and spoons, but tin flatware. This one has the rhythms of someone exhaling, someone just muttering words, sighing them like older people who are efficient in saying what they have to say. They mostly eat beans. They are mostly good. What are they doing now? They've lived their day, and yet they haven't died. They keep putting on their clothes and putting things away. Not much going on, just routines of near nothingness. The fundamentals of existence. 
putting on their clothes, putting things away, and then they have memories. They live in a rented back room, and the poet unfurls one line that's not a brief, staccato, abbreviated phrase, but one full of objects, like the jumble of things piling up in the back room, their rented back room, beads, receipts, dolls and cloths, tobacco crumbs, vases and fringes, more old stuff, like them, more bits of nothing, like them in their routines, except they do have those memories of twinklings and twinges, happy moments, times when they were young and excited and fresh and full of promise, and that's beautiful too. They feel the pull of those years. That's the twinkling and the twinge, but it's also crushing to see the life piling up, the sad remains of a life. Even though they put things away dutifully, the house fills slowly with these objects you can't shed. Dolls. What are they doing with dolls and beads and receipts? You just have these things. Just like I have a, an IBM Aptiva from 1993 somewhere in one of my closets, and yearbooks in my attic, and extension cords and light bulbs and spare parts for a toilet flush valve in my basement old socks, and slivers of dry soap. The things that accrue. But Brooks was not limited to just descriptions of individual couples living in hardship. She wrote poems about religion, too. A penitent considers another coming of Mary, for example, in which the poet speculates about what Mary would think of the modern world. Corrupt, full of war and hatred and hypocrisy, would Mary forgive and give us another savior? Or would she punish us and withhold that baby? Would she give us the baby a sad and second savior, as Brooks puts it? She decides she wouldn't shake her head and leave this military air. She would ratify a modern hay. <laughs> Once again, just look at the joy Brooks takes in language and words. Ratify a modern hay and put her baby there. The lines are, She would not shake her head and leave this military air, but ratify a modern hay and put her baby there. These are sounds. These are songs. This is singing. Brooks could do anything. She was such a good poet. And what's great about her is how much she changes, but how much her general humanity stays the same. She doesn't get bitter or crowded or cloistered or cramped. That's the word I'm looking for, cramped. As she ages, she gets more full-throated with her confidence. And then as she really ages, as she crests the middle of life and slopes toward the end, she doesn't get pinched. She stays big and wonderful, at least in the poems that I've read. She writes history poems, too, poems about events, poems about the Black experience and the Black historical experience. She writes poems about Black identity, and being African, what that means in America, and coming to grips with what it means to be black, to have the hair of a black person and to be dark or light-colored in a world where the gradations are relevant and potentially overwhelming. She lives through the world. She's not a monk hiding from the world. She lives through it. But she keeps her eyes open for the non-political, too, the way people walk down the street or struggle to get by. She reads the newspaper, but she also looks out the window. 
There's so many poems I'd like to read, poems where she writes about everything from Mayor Harold Washington to Robert Frost to discourses on truth to explications of sunsets and blackness and abortion and children and philosophy and psychology and poverty. But I think I'll have to limit myself to two more. One of them is The Bean Eaters or The Kitchenette Building Couple, perhaps, but not viewed through that prism of bleakness, but the liveliness of love and romantic love. And the other is a poem, her most famous poem, I think, which for me is all about reading a poem wrong, which I did. We will hear her read that poem, and I will talk about my reading of it and how it differed from hers. Okay, first... Our young couple. I didn't want to leave you with the impression that Brooks only describes a kind of sepia-toned, nobly suffering family or couple finding the humanity in struggle. Here's one that puts love and sex at the center. Maybe this is an exploration of those twinkling and twinge-inspiring memories as they are being made. It's called When You Have Forgotten Sunday, The Love Story. Begins with a dash right in the middle of a line. First line. And when you have forgotten the bright bedclothes on a Wednesday and a Saturday, and most especially when you have forgotten Sunday, when you have forgotten Sunday halves in bed, or me sitting on the front room radiator in the limping afternoon, looking off down the long street to nowhere, hugged by my plain old wrapper of no expectation, and nothing I have to do, and I'm happy why, and if Monday never had to come. When you have forgotten that, I say, and how you swore if somebody beeped the bell, and how my heart played hopscotch if the telephone rang, and how we finally went in to Sunday dinner, that is to say, went across the front room floor to the ink-spotted table in the southwest corner. To Sunday dinner, which was always chicken and noodles, or chicken and rice, and salad, and rye bread, and tea, and chocolate chip cookies. I say, when you have forgotten that, when you have forgotten my little presentiment that the war would be over before they got to you, and how we finally undressed, and whipped out the light, and flowed into bed, and lay loose-limbed for a moment, in the weekend bright bedclothes, then gently folded into each other. When you have, I say, forgotten all that, then you may tell, then I may believe, you have forgotten me well. Here's a woman, looking back to those years, World War II years, when Brooks was first married and her honeymoon suite was a kitchenette apartment. We know how bleak that could be. But look at the vibrancy of the life as it's remembered, not turning the place into a palace, still remembering that the table was ink-spotted and the dinner was always chicken and noodles or chicken and rice. But there were chocolate chip cookies, too. You didn't sit on a chair... The poet didn't. She sat on a radiator in the limping afternoon and gazed down the long street to nowhere. But it's Sunday. Look how good Sunday is. There's nothing you have to do. And she says, I'm happy. Why? 
Happiness when you can't put a finger on why you're happy. That is young love. No job, no money, didn't just strike it rich, not fulfilled by anything in particular. You can't find a reason why you're happy, but you are. Because you're in love. And so you treasure that tea and those chocolate chip cookies. And if the phone rings, your heart plays hopscotch. And if someone beeps the bell, your lover curses because who wants to be interrupted when the two of you are there together with no expectations and nothing to do? Sunday, not Monday. The war is on, but you have a little hope that things are going to be okay. They're going to be lucky. Your lover won't be drafted. And so the two of you can be there together. And then the turn into night she says, we finally undressed and whipped out the light. What a sexy phrase that is, really. Whipped out the light. Can't wait to get the light out of here. Let's go into darkness and flow into bed and lay loose-limbed for a moment. The bed clothes bright. It's the weekend. And then we fold into each other. And the poet says, that's who I was. That's who we were. You say you've forgotten? You've forgotten me? Fine. Fine. You can say that. You can tell me you've forgotten that. I don't believe it. Those moments. If this doesn't remind you of me, of us, well then fine. I will accept that you have truly forgotten because, baby, it didn't get better than that, than what we had at that time in those moments. If you've forgotten that, then okay. Then you've forgotten me. These poems are so good. <laughs> Gwendolyn Brooks, my friends, just pick up her selected poems. Open the page and start reading. Now, the last poem is probably one you've already read. It's one of the most anthologized poems in English, and it's because it's a great poem, but also it's a very teachable poem. It's very easy for teachers to use this poem to say things about poetry. You've probably guessed what I'm talking about. It's called We Real Cool. It starts out with a bit of orientation. The pool players, seven at the golden shovel. We real cool. We left school. We lurk late. We strike straight. We sing sin. We thin gin. We jazz June. We die soon. Easy to teach. The lines here, you can't see this, but you probably know them. The lines here end with we. Seven of them until the last one, which is just two syllables. All the rhymes, cool and school, late and straight, sin and gin, June and soon, those are in the middle of the lines. And so in addition to being student-friendly for being short and vivid, you can see these pool players, right? These seven at the golden shovel. In addition to that, it's also student-friendly, which is another way of saying teacher-friendly for being full of easy-to-read words with maybe just enough flourish in a phrase like sing-sin to open up the discussion. What does it mean to be cool and leave school, to lurk late and strike straight? Strike straight is like a pool cue, maybe, but also bold and full of action, like rebels who are out there taking life for themselves, maybe cutting a few corners. Bits of violence when called for. Thinning gin, drinking it up, drinking it down. And singing sin, what does that mean? Howl with pleasure, 
celebrate sin? What does Jazz June mean? Apparently, that was viewed by some as body. Jazz. Jazz is such a versatile word, especially in those years. But even today, jazz is cerebral, but it's also subversive. It's cool, but it's also a little outlawish, like jazz cigarettes. But it's so cool. It's such a cool sounding word. It looks cool. It is cool. It represents cool. It was so cool that Jack Kerouac could never really get over how much cooler it was than the square life. He was living up in Columbia, and in the village they had jazz. They had jazz in Chicago, too, on the south side. And jazz in June. June, what is June? A month of flowering. It's a month for being young, for expressing yourself, for being green and full of promise. And then the killer last line, we die soon. Die soon is just two words in that line, the shortest line, as if the words are cut off early, as life for these Romeos or these young rebels or these outlaws or these whoever they are, young street kids, young pool players, not in school, lurking late, not waiting around, taking life in their own hands, seizing it, striking straight, they will die soon. Bam. And they know it. Is the speaker here them? Are they lamenting? We will die soon. We know we're doomed. Is this overheard by the speaker? Because that's not how I read it originally. I read this poem when I was young, in my 20s, living in Taiwan, teaching English to three women in their 30s who were studying to get a master's degree. Young moms. And me on my motorcycle in that crazy traffic and living kind of a fearless life. And what I read in this poem was that the poet was smarter than these kids, wiser. The poet saw through their bravado. She was saying, all right, brag all all you want about leaving school and drinking and playing pool and all that, and are you going to brag about dying young too? Because that's where you are headed. And me as a young man read it as the sort of finger-wagging of the older woman, like the voice of mom or the aunt or... Grandma or the teacher, the voice of reason, the voice of, here are the consequences. I see you, young man. Let me tell you the consequences. And now, I think that was a misreading. Not because, why did I misread it? Not because I was white and young and male. And Brooks, when she wrote this, was none of those things. Or maybe I should say not just because I was who I was, but because when I saw the words and the lines, I thought of it as a work of art because I was trained to see it like that. Those we's at the end of the line, they should come at the beginning syntactically. Brooks puts them at the end of each line. That was to keep us unsettled, to give the poem a careening feel, and then to come to a crashing halt at the end. Touché, great poet, you have made your point. That was my view back then, and Gwendolyn Brooks, she was up to something different. She said those wheeze at the end are like little breaths, little intakes of breath. The wheeze are little bits of uncertainty, hesitations. They're markers that these guys aren't brave and bold, They're insecure and scared because this life they're living isn't one they're plowing through, but one they're gripping. 
Let's hear her talk about this poem and read the poem. Listen to how she reads the words, especially those words at the end of the line, we. And listen to her preface, where she talks about this poem being the one everyone knows her for, which you can tell from her tone is a bit of a blessing and a curse. So let's not make that mistake. We will read more Gwendolyn Brooks. I hope I've at least encouraged that much here today. But I do want to close with this poem. We real cool. Okay, here's Gwendolyn Brooks. Thank you. I guess I'd better offer you we real cool. Most young people know me only by that poem. I don't mean that I dislike it, but I would prefer it if the textbook compilers and the anthologists would assume that I've written a few other poems. I wrote it because I was passing by a pool hall in my community one afternoon during school time, and I saw therein a uh, little bunch of boys, I say here in this poem, seven, and they were shooting pool. But instead of asking myself, why aren't they in school, I asked myself, I wonder how they feel about themselves, and just perhaps they might have considered themselves contemptuous of the establishment, or at least they wanted to feel that they were contemptuous of the establishment, might want to thumb their noses at the establishment. And I represented the establishment with the month of June, which is a nice, gentle, non-controversial, enjoyable, pleasant, fragrant month that everybody loves. Uh, this poem has been banned here and there because of the word jazz, which some people have considered a sexual reference. That was not my intention, though I have no objection if it helps anybody. But I was thinking of music. The pool players, seven at the golden shovel. We real cool, we left school, we lurk. Light we strike straight we sing sin we then gin we jazz June we die soon. I'm going to read you three more poems. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I could listen to her talk all day. I love how Brooks moves on quickly, knowing that everyone is going to applaud and she could let that last phrase, we die soon, ring in the air. Everyone would treat that with stunned reverence, but with all her modesty, she's ready to go on to the next poem. She's a bit like the musician who wants to play something other than her greatest hit. A lot of good songs on the new album, everybody. How about, some, how about I play some of those and some deep tracks and hey... Why are you all going to the bathroom at the same time? Okay, the reason I wanted you to hear her read that was to hear her description of getting into the minds of the boys. She said she want, she wondered how they felt about themselves. She didn't wonder, why aren't they in school? Which is how I assumed the grown-up looking at these boys, what, they, what the grown-up would ask. But instead, she wondered how they felt about themselves. And also, I wanted you to hear how different the poem sounds with those wheeze at the end in Brooks's reading. Did you hear the way she read those wheeze? That little 
intake, almost an afterthought at the end of the line, a little coda, a little tail. It's such a different reading. And it made me realize that I've grown into the poem, not just because I'm no longer a young male full of bravado and nodding with barely concealed impatience at the finger-wagging grown-up who's saying, oh yes, you're all those things, you big shot, and you're going to die soon. It's not that. It's that I've gotten better at reading poetry. Not lines and meter, but life. Life. It's the life and the humanity, and Brooks had it when she was in her teens, and she had it when she was in her 80s. And it's why her poems, even as the politics around her changed and her positions responded to that, and the specifics of her era inform her works. But it's the humanity that's there, and that's what shines through. It's walking past a pool hall, the golden shovel. Jeez, how perfect is that? The shovel that digs the grave. What a name for a bar. The golden shovel. And Brooks just drops it in to wrap our poem in a sandwich of death, start to finish, cradle to grave, with a flaring up of life in the middle. It's why I read this with my little take on the lines and what they did and the nice little ambiguity and above all the sort of sermonizing of it, the morality, and I missed what Brooks was doing. She saw these seven kids and didn't think, yeah, right, you're tough now. You school skippers, you'll probably be dead soon. She saw these seven kids and thought, what would it be like to think like them? To think like them, to be in their shoes, to be them. It's why Brooks is an artist and why her poems are art. It's why Richard Wright said, Miss Brooks is real and so are her poems hard and real. It's why the critics say her poems are teeming with real live people, and it's why, after reading Gwendolyn Brooks, I don't think so much about poetry. I look out my window, and I look down the long street, and I think about life. There are people there, and there are lives being lived, and if you're looking for poetry, you have all the poems you need, creeping and fighting, shuffling and struggling, and now and then silent, and now and then shouting. Now and then, sometimes, they're out there, those poems, in the darkness and in the light, as the days lengthen and the sunsets fade. The poems are out there, walking past. They're out there, and they're singing. Okay, there we go. My thanks to Professor Sundara Rajan for joining me and to Gwendolyn Brooks, who won every prize and every honor and is on the postage stamp and has schools named after her and deserved every bit of all that and more. I wish we named stadiums after poets instead of corporations. Wouldn't that be great? Although maybe that's too grand for a Gwendolyn Brooks. She probably prefers schools and libraries. And that's good, too. We have many good shows coming up. Speaking of good, including our look at the Indian poet Bharati. You won't want to miss that one. And you won't want to miss our look at Ian Fleming. 
and our return to Chicago, that great city, for a look at the Black James Bond. Please do subscribe and grab the phones of your friends and sign them up too. I'm just kidding, of course. Better to persuade than coerce. But if they're not looking, just punch it in. History of literature. Subscribe. Five stars. I'm just kidding. I'm not that desperate. I don't need you to commit crimes for me, people. Stay friends with your friends. We will do just fine without you pulling any shady tricks. Your enthusiasm is appreciated, but in this case, unwarranted. Speaking of unwarranted, I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>